This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.
I've been washed up, I've been put down. Hold on to your good. But with you I belong. Cause you help me be strong. There's a change in my life since you came along. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Shy. Oh, yeah, I'll sit, I'll sit right here. How about that? This is so nice. One, two, three. You are my Valentine, my lovely Valentine. You make me happy when I am blue. You are the one love that I do think of. There is no one for me but you two. You are my Valentine, my lovely Valentine. You make me happy when I am blue. I am blue. You are the one love that I do think of. There is no one for me but you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, is this work? Oh, it is working. So just to clarify, I worked 1989 to 91 at the law school. So Johnny's question was, how long was I in student life? So I was in student life since 91. That's why Sarah's answer was wrong. So Sarah was going for the big picture of including my law school years. So, you know, I'm sorry, Sarah, you lost out for knowing too much. Um, there might be a lesson in there. But anyway, so first of all, I want to give a huge thank you to the Agape Latte Committee. There's a group of students and staff who sort of uh, jumped in last semester to uh, embrace this program and plan it, and they've done a lot of work to bring this night together. So uh, before we go any further, just a huge thank you to everybody in the red shirts and everybody who's helped make this night tonight. I am uh, very, very flattered to um, be here with you tonight. I'm, I'm excited, I'm honored, um, and I didn't drink coffee till I was 27, and I, I made it through uh, Villanova and then law school without coffee. So um, you too could live with less coffee, I would say. Um, but we'll, we'll get to some tips for living. Before we start, I, you know, it's uh, always nice to talk to a group of people, but I feel like it goes a little better if you know a little bit more about me. So, um, and for better or for worse, you know, you're going to end up learning a lot about me tonight. So I appreciate your kindness in, in listening to some of my stories. But so you know a little bit about me. I um, was born in Connecticut, actually, but I'm an Army brat. So we moved a lot in my childhood. And in fact, I went to different schools in first grade and in second grade and in third grade. Uh, New Jersey in first grade, Kansas in second grade and uh, Germany, of all places, in third, fourth, and fifth grade. So, um, so that, I think, had a lot to do with shaping my childhood. The first time I met somebody who'd lived in the same house their whole life, I just felt sorry for them because I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Um, and only when I was older did I realize that actually was more normal for people to live in the same house or the same town their whole life. Um, I'm the youngest of three children in my family of uh, origin, and for those of you who are the youngest, you know, we could talk sometime. It is the best birth order in my own view, and that's probably another talk of being uh, the youngest or the oldest or the middle child, whatever you might be. Um, and then uh, I did go to Villanova, as you learned in the trivia, and when I got to Villanova, one of the big questions that everybody asked during orientation, then as now, was where are you from? So this had always been a vexing question for me because I'd lived a lot of places. So because I was born in Connecticut, I would always say Connecticut. But I realized I had moved away from Connecticut just before my third birthday. So I probably couldn't say Connecticut to people who had actually been to Connecticut. And so I thought, well, I can't say Connecticut. What should I say? So I, I realized I probably needed to say New Jersey because that's where I had gone to both uh, junior high and then high school because my dad had retired from the military, so we ended up staying in one place for this, really, the second half of my childhood. So, you know, and at Villanova, then as now, a lot of people from New York, a lot of people from New Jersey. So what do people always say when you say you're from New Jersey? What exit? You know, is what they at least said in those days, like what exit? Well, I actually had no idea what they were talking about because my father, who's a wonderful man, but he has never believed in driving on a road that you have to pay for. So I had never been on the turnpike, even though I had lived in New Jersey for much of my life. 
Um, I've never been on the Garden State Parkway, uh, certainly never on the Atlantic City Expressway. We went to every back road down the shore that existed. So, um, you know, when they said what exit, I was like, I had no idea what they're talking about. And somebody said, well, it's the turnpike. And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. Um, but actually, it's exit five is what I know now, because once I was uh, able to drive myself places, I realized how much more quickly you got places when you actually took the road that you had to pay for. Um, so, so I became a uh, turnpike and toll road girl. But that's a little bit about my, um, you know, early years. So tonight what I uh, want to chat with you about is this idea of calling and feeling called. And, and that's why we decide to call the talk, um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Kathy. Uh, because in my life, and, and I suspect in many of your lives, that I have felt a call. And often the hard question is, a call to what? Um, and there, what I have found is there is not always an obvious or easy answer to that but it's a great question to always be asking. So um, tonight I'm gonna to share with you a few pivotal points in my life about, uh, what, uh, about when I felt called or how I tried to listen to the call or how I tried to respond to the call. So I'm gonna take you back to um, You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine, or actually You Are My Sunshine, um, the Stevie Wonder, uh, You Are My Sunshine, and also uh, Tony Orlando and Dawn. Does anybody remember them? Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. I was gonna see if we could all do a refrain of tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Does anybody know what year those songs came out in and were number one? 1973, okay. I was in eighth grade in 1973 and um, it was a big year in Kathy Burns's life. So, <laughs> well, you know, and probably for some of you, if you look back on those, you know, awkward teen years. Um, so uh, I had, for Christmas that year, or maybe the year before, I had gotten a Bible. It was the 70s, so my Bible was called The Way. They used very cool <laughs> language in my Bible. Um, you know, it was no, like, New Revised translation, no Jerusalem translation. It was The Way. And um, it really sort of spoke to me as, as I got this gift for Christmas from my family and frankly started to read it, which I know makes me seem weird, but I, I don't really think I'm that weird, and I ask you to hang with me here. Um, so I had started to think more about God, what God means. Um, I grew up in a family that we went to church on Sundays, and there would be readings from Scripture, but when you just read them sort of randomly, they don't always make a lot of sense, but when you sit down and like read a whole book that's in Scripture, it, it sort of feels different and sounds different. So, you know, in eighth grade, I started doing that a little bit, and it kind of had a profound impact on me. And it was funny, it was, I don't know if any of the Spires are still here, but their second song, I actually thought you could almost apply to one's relationship with God in terms of, you know, I didn't feel like I belonged till I met you, and, you know, I can mess up, but you made everything right in life. And I found, and again, I don't think I was a weirdo, but I found that, like I would hear popular songs and I would always think, oh, that's like God talking to me. Um, and I would always see or hear a religious um, kind of interpretation or spiritual interpretation. So I'm cruising along. This is part of my frame of mind in eighth grade in addition to having like a little crush on Mike Bodie and you know other little eighth grade people that you have crushes on. Um, <laughs> maybe crushes were different in the 70s and they are now, I'm not sure, and I don't know that I need to know. Um, <laughs> But anyway, somewhere in this time period, I saw the quote, um, what you are is God's gift to you. What you become 
is your gift to God. And this like blew me away. What you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. So doodling was big in the 70s, like there were doodle books you could buy, you could have doodle posters on your wall in your bedroom. So I doodled this all over all my notebooks. Um, later, somebody told me they thought I was like a total holy roller because they would see this on my notebook. I just thought everybody like would ask this question because it seemed like such an obvious question. Once I heard the quote of who do I want to become? And I really started thinking, who do I want to become? Who does God call me to be? Um, and again, that is a theme that will run through my life um, of who is God calling me to be? Who is God? What is God calling me to be? So I start writing this on all my notebooks, and it becomes my little mantra. And then eighth grade, at least in my life, was sort of also a pivotal year because I had to decide where to go to high school. And my older brother had gone to the Catholic high school. My older sister had gone to the public high school. You know, my parents, it was the 70s. They didn't really care what we did. They were just like, decide where you want to go, and we'll send you there. It's fine. So um, I was going to go to the public school. My friends were in public school. I actually was in the same school system for three consecutive years and had the fourth on the horizon, which was going to set a record for me. And I was kind of excited about that. But then as I started to think, well, who do I want to become? I feel like God is calling me to something. I don't know what God is calling me to be. Maybe I should go to the you know, faith-based high school because maybe that will help me on my journey. So you know, against all odds, shocking everybody, I decide to go to the Catholic high school, which is Holy Cross High School in Delran, New Jersey. Sometimes people from Villanova have gone there. Any Holy Crossers in the audience? Any Lancers? <laughs> is there a Lancer here? No, OK. Um, oh, well, I thought it was worth a shot. So, um, so I go to Holy Cross and, you know, have in many ways a very typical high school experience um, and met some nice people. If any of you ever made the transition from public school to Catholic school, you understand the meaning of the word click in a way, you know, that is kind of daunting. I think because of my army bratness, I was unfazed by the clicks, but it was really hard to break in to the social circles of those grammar schools from all the different parishes. And there was one other girl from the public school, who, or two other girls from the public school who I knew who had gone. And freshman year, we were like each other's little group because at least we knew each other. But gradually, we got to know other people. I ran track, got to be very close to some people on the track team, um, and met a very nice group of friends, but never was quite on the inside, which is fine. I can do fine inside, outside, whatever. Um, but was cruising along in high school. And um, you know, then four years go by, it's time for college. So once again, I'm thinking, well, a cute little story about high school, actually. Has anybody here read the novel uh, by Robert Heinlein? It's a science fiction novel called Stranger in a Strange Land. All right, it was big back in the day. Oh, yeah, you read it? OK, good. Good book, right? So somehow, in ninth grade, I was 14 years old. We had to read a book for world history and a novel that we could choose. My brother had just read this one, I think, so I read it. We were a big science fiction family. And this book, I felt like, was the most profound book I'd ever read in my life. I have not read it since, because I'm afraid if I read it again, I won't still think it's profound, and I don't want to lose that. Um, but it was funny, this morning, in anticipation of this conversation, I Googled on Wikipedia the synopsis of the book. And there's like all this sex, apparently, in the book. I'm like, what did I think of this in, when I was 14? Like, I don't even think I knew what sex was. I'm sure I didn't know what sex was when I was 14. <laughs> let me correct that. And, and, I, and then I'm like, and why did my parents let me read this book when I was 14? But again, you know, nobody really was paying that much attention. So um, 
you know, in the best kind of sense of, of that era. So um, in this book, one of the things that was so profound and why I always say that that's the book that changed my life is it's about an, a human who's born on Mars from a human expedition, but all the humans have died, so he's raised by Martians. Another human expedition goes, they bring him back to Earth, a lot of politics around that, but he's trying to figure out Earth and Earth culture and all that. And as he's trying to figure out religion and what people mean by religion, and it's set in a time on a planet where it's very factious religiously, um, he ends up saying kind of, God is in everyone. And I remember thinking, I haven't quite heard that before, that God is in everyone. Um, Groke, I think, was the word he kind of came up for this concept. Um, but it was thou art God, and, and this notion that each one of you, each, you know, me, everybody is God. And I was like, wow. And it profoundly affected how I viewed God, because it made God a very personal God, because God was every single person that I encountered in the course of the day. Um, and so this, again, became sort of how I looked at the world. So go through high school, time for college, um, applying to different schools. I was a big track runner, as I said. And in those days, there were only a few schools that had women's track teams, and I was planning to run in college. So Villanova was one of those schools. So I applied to Villanova. I wasn't really planning to come here because my good friend from high school, her big brother went here and I didn't really like him. So I thought, well, I can't go there, you know. Um, but we came to visit. Uh, my mom was a school teacher, so we went on President's Day, actually, coming up, um, because she was off from school. And we came to visit, and I fell in love with the trees. And I said, I have to come to this school. I love these trees. <laughs> and, and very sound decision-making skills Kathy Burns has. Um, so, uh, and there were some beautiful trees there that are not still here today, but there are still a lot of beautiful trees. And, and it was, you know, literally one of the best decisions I made for probably not in ter terribly uh, profound reasons. Um, so I came to Villanova, and uh, my orientation theme, as some of you know, was go for it, which uh, became a little bit of a mantra also for me. But while I was at Villanova, I had a wonderful, a small but wonderful group of friends that we kind of went through college with, and, and two big experiences. Um, one um, was a service break experience, and it was in the early years of the service break experiences. There was one spring break trip, uh, 25 of us. We went to Hot Springs, North Carolina, uh, worked with a Jesuit mission there, um, doing a variety of, of activities through the course of the week met some Jesuit volunteer corps people while we were down there. And, and as I was down there, it was my sophomore year, I thought, and we'd met these young people who were giving a year of service, I thought, oh my goodness, like, who wouldn't want to do this? What a great thing to do with your life. So I kind of tucked away in my head, after graduation, I'm going to do a year of service. And I'd started Villanova as a psychology major, actually graduated as a psychology major because I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. But um, as you know, my coursework went along, I thought, you know, I don't see myself studying this for years and years, which you have to do to get a PhD to become a psychologist. So I thought, I wonder what I should do. And again, it went back to that question of, what am I called to? And on some level, I thought, I'm called to love, I'm called to serve. Um, but the question was how? 
And, and actually, before coming to Villanova, one of those high school friends, a woman named Lillian, who I'm still very, very good friends with, she was not my best friend then, but she certainly is my best friend now, 40-some years later. Um, she is like one of the most wonderful human beings you would ever want to know. And when I was getting ready to go to college, that idea of who do I want to become was always nagging at me. So I was like, I want to become like Lillian. And I thought, what does Lillian do? What can I learn from Lillian? And as I was observing her and her interactions, what I realized is Lillian always, always, always reflects love. Um, any conversation she has with somebody, any interaction she has with somebody, any choice she makes, it's a choice that affirms, it's a choice that gives the sacredness of another person acknowledgement. It's, it's a choice that is positive. Um, I've never met anybody else like her. Um, and so as I was in college and I was thinking what I want to do is be like Lillian, like not WWJD, what would Jesus do? It was like WWLD, what would Lillian do? Um, but I thought um, this kind of service that I experienced over the service break trip was the kind of thing that reflected love and that um, would help me maybe on that road of becoming who I was, even though I wasn't really sure who that person would be. So, um, and then the other big experience was I had an honors course. I was also an honors major. And I had an honors course that was taught, actually, too, by a law school professor here. And I just was so uh, fascinated by this class. I couldn't wait to go to class. Class flew by. It was the most interesting thing in the world. And I thought, I love this class so much. I must, I, I should be a lawyer. And, and it was kind of right at the right time because I ditched the idea of becoming a psychologist. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And of course, as you all know, that never feels very good when you don't know what you want to do. So I thought, I'll go to law school. Now, mind you, I had never spoken to a lawyer. I had never like, thought about what it would be like to work in a law firm. But I really liked this class, and it seemed like a really good idea to me at the time. So as I was graduating from Villanova, I kind of did both paths. I decided I'd apply to law school, defer for a year, and then also do a year of service. So as uh, Peter widely figured out, somehow, I, I was in Charlotte for the year with a small volunteer program called the Missionary Cynical Volunteers. And um, that year, I met a woman who, in a very different way from Lillian, but showed me, once again, how to reflect love as I was like, who do I want to be? How do I want to be? Who do I want to become? My students who have me for leadership, you can understand why I love being proactive, because it's all about deciding who you are and, and who you want to be. So when I was in Charlotte, you know, I was obviously the new kid on the block. I was 22 years old. And so they had the Catholic uh, Charities, Catholic Social Services Christmas food drive for the whole diocese, for the whole city. And somehow they thought it would be a good idea to put me in charge of that. You know, I knew nothing. My first decision was to order a red phone for the people to call because I thought, oh, it's Christmas time. We should have a red phone. Um, and they were like, what? But, um, and of course, there was no online or cell phones or any other way to order things, so they had to call up. And in the course of this, a woman called to ask for a Christmas basket. Her name was Ruby Hall. And she said, I live by myself. I have very bad uh, diabetes. I have very bad uh, circulation and leg issues. And I'm homebound. I don't really get a chance to. She was put on the list. Um, you know, I wasn't on her route or I didn't deliver the food. But we had a couple different conversations on the phone. So about a month after Christmas, she calls me up at the office. And she says, you know, you were so nice when I spoke to you on the phone. 
um, I just want to let you know I'm in the hospital right now, and I just had both of my legs amputated uh, because of the gangrene that had set in from my diabetes. And I mean, I was horrified. I, I could not imagine what that would be like to have both legs amputated. And, you know, so we're talking a little bit, and then I said, well, you know, do you have family? And, and she was like, no, I have no one. And I said, well, would, would you mind if I came to visit? So she said, that would be great. So that began my relationship with Ruby. So I visited Ruby in the hospital a few times, and then when she went home, she lived alone. Um, when she went home, I would stop over her house after work, um, you know, once every week or two to, to visit and, and catch up with her. And she was the most amazing woman because she said that she had never felt such freedom that she felt after she lost her legs because her legs had been in such pain and agony for so many years and had limited what she could do for so long that um, once they were gone and the disease was gone that um, she felt like, you know, with rehab she was able to learn how to prepare meals and do stuff for herself around her house. And, and, and she was always positive and always caring, always would ask me how I was doing. And I, I learned from this woman who was totally random encounter of how we found each other, of how, um, how somebody can be filled with love inside even when the outside is a little dire. And, and I realized that love isn't always like external circumstances. And in fact, sometimes I think external circumstances have very little to do with the love in our life and the love um, that we can both give and receive, but it really is something interior, and, and Ruby taught me that. And we kept in touch really till, till she passed away a few years later. So, so then I'm in Charlotte, I had applied to law school, so I, I continue on that path without really rethinking it. Um, I ended up at, at Duke in uh, Raleigh, not Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Um, the other uh, two teams I cheer for, it's having a little cognitive dissonance with Villanova ranked as number one and Duke not even in the top 25, but it's a very nice feeling, I have to say, having been a Villanova fan forever. Uh, um, but I'm also a Duke fan. Um, so I go to law school and I was not prepared I loved my classes, so interesting, class would fly by, but soon you got a sense of what it would be like maybe to practice law, and I thought, oh, I'm not sure this is for me. So I went to talk to one of my professors, always a good thing to do, go talk to your professors, and he encouraged me not to quit at Christmas um, because he said uh, at Duke, at least at that time, all the courses first year were a year long, so he was like, if you leave at Christmas, you'll have nothing. If you at least stay till the end of the first year, you would have, you know, 30 credits of your first year, 40 credits, whatever it was. So I decided to stay, stick with it. But then that summer, I went home. I worked at a small law firm. Um, but I decided, you know, I, I can't, I don't, this doesn't feel right. This is not what I'm feeling called to. Um, I don't see how I can be that person who somehow I'm feeling called to be in this setting. So I called Duke up, I said, you know, I'm not gonna come back. And I was also an RA, and I was supposed to be an area coordinator that next year. And I did not call Residence Life, perhaps that was a little telling, um, to say I wasn't coming back. And my parents, you know, asked me what my plan was. Again, some of you might relate to that. 
And I really didn't have any plans. And so, um, and again, that question of what am I called to do, what am I supposed to do, I really just didn't know. And frankly, not knowing, I didn't have the courage not to go back. I had never quit anything before in my life. Um, you know, I was obviously a, a decent student and, and, and enjoyed school in many ways. And, and so my family was like, go back, education is never lost, it's a good thing to do. So I went back, um, kind of showed up without any money, uh, you know, to pay. And fortunately, RA, being an RA was very helpful, but, you know, borrowed the money to, to finish the next two years. And it was the 80s at this point, Reaganomics, easy to get a job, big firm, make a decent amount of money right out of law school. And so I kind of plunged into being a lawyer. But I always thought, I'm not going to like this. This isn't going to be for me. So sometimes I wonder if it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And sometimes many of you might be thinking, oh, I want to go to law school. I can't believe she's like saying this. Oh my god, what am I going to do? Um, and, and what I have wonderful friends who are lawyers, and I know good people who are lawyers. It just didn't feel like the right fit for me. And as I asked myself, what am I called to be? I would say, I think I'm supposed to love and serve God. And I didn't see how I was loving and serving God for me in that particular role. And, and frankly, somewhere in this time period, I also developed um, sort of a little a test for myself that I still use today, in all honesty. And I say, if I die tomorrow, would I like how I spent today? And I'm a person who's always thought about death. I don't know why I haven't had any terrible traumatic death experiences. My parents are both still living. Um, but somehow, I think about death every day. And not in a morbid way, like it's just part of life. It's, you know, the beginning and end. You never get out of here alive. It's going to happen to each of us. So you may as well think about it, you know, and be like ready for it. So if I die tomorrow, like I want to like how I spent today, okay? So if this was the last day, this is the end of my becoming today, I want, you know, to feel like, oh, you did okay, Kath. You're all right. So, um, you know, again, does this make me weird? I hope not. Um, but uh, so I would say... I'd say when I was practicing law, I thought, if I die tomorrow, I'm really going to be annoyed because I would not want to spend my last day like doing the kinds of things I did today at work. Um, and, and sometimes I would say, you know, I wish you could just sit down and sit over a jelly donut. People who know me know I like donuts. Like over a jelly donut, say, you know, what's the right outcome here? But our system, which I firmly believe in, is about zealous advocacy and representation of both sides and everybody trying to do the best that they can for their client. So it was this kind of quandary of I believe in that system, and I believe ultimately right often prevails in that system, but I just didn't like being part of that system. And for me, it wasn't life-giving. So after not too many years, I thought, um, you know, in those days there was no seatbelt law. This will scandalize you, but I didn't wear my seatbelt as a general rule just because it wasn't part of, you know, what people did. Um, so I started wearing my seatbelt because I thought, you know, again, if I died tomorrow, I'd be really annoyed. So I got to increase my chances of making it to tomorrow. You know, how do young people die? Car accidents. I better start buckling up. So, um, and, and that was probably my most risky behavior was driving. I wasn't like a terribly crazy kind of girl. So probably no big surprise to you there. Um, but uh, so, so after not too many years, I thought, I, I need to go. I, ha I have to uh, find another way. And again, that question of what am I called to do? And as I mentioned, I've been an RA all through law school. I've been an RA as an undergraduate here. 
I was also an orientation counselor here. I'd done a lot of student life-ish kinds of things. Um, and, and so I was looking uh, for what jobs were out there. And there was actually a position at Villanova's Law School teaching legal writing. And uh, I hadn't been back to Villanova since I graduated. Um, and, and yet I thought so many good things happened to me when I was an undergraduate. I had wonderful friends. I felt like I developed a, a very personal relationship with my God and my maker and my creator. Um, and that I grew into a confident, um, uh, reasonably happy person here. So uh, I thought maybe this transition will be good for me to go back to Villanova as I figure out what I want to do. And mind you, you know, I'm like, you know, many tens of thousands of dollars in debt from law school, spent three years in law school, um, but was feeling like I need to make a turn and do something else because I'm hearing a call, I'm feeling a call, I'm not sure what that call is, but I know it's not what I'm doing right now. So I uh, took the job, and then ultimately a couple years later, had an opportunity in student life in 1991 and started in student life doing some other things than what I'm doing now, but basically on this, on this course that, that I am on. And what was kind of neat is when I uh, started in student life, um, probably before your parents were like even acquainted, um, I, I thought to myself, I feel so free because it felt right. And sometimes in life, that gut feeling is an important feeling to keep in mind of um, might not be what I planned, might not be what I thought, but this feels really, really right to do. And it felt that. Although I also felt um, on the other side of it, initially I felt what a waste of money for law school and what a waste of years of my life. And yet, I have to say, like within a very short period of time, I was still writing those loan checks every month, um, when I realized, you know, law school has shaped and formed me and made me the person that I am and was part of my becoming journey. And it, it was great. I liked who I was. I liked how my mind worked. Um, law school changes you, like probably any graduate school changes you. And, and I liked those changes too. So even though I didn't end up actively practicing law um, the way that most of my classmates did from school, I certainly um, very quickly came to appreciate how that was a positive uh, influence and factor in my life. And, and I really appreciated it. So I continue to say what I am, what I become is my gift to God. So who do I want to become? And how am I reflecting love? Always going back to my dear friend, Lillian, how am I reflecting love? So three quick stories, and then I'll wrap up. If you're not bored, are you too bored? Are we OK on time? OK. So uh, one story, and, and these kind of go to successes and failures of reflecting love um, in my time here from you know a couple different settings in life. So um, one year, in the advent of cell phones and technology and all that, I was realizing that I had, um, I was losing a little bit of like personal connection. And I was realizing sometimes because of my legal background, like I'll look at leases for seniors or juniors when they're getting ready to move off campus, all that stuff. So I was realizing somebody might come in my office, you know, this is their lease, they want me to look at it. 
I didn't even make eye contact. I was like, oh, let me see the least. You know, I, I think I was pleasant, but I wasn't really engaging. So one year, I actually had to make my New Year's resolution that I would make eye contact with everybody that I encountered in the course of the day. And I was like, how pitiful is that, Kathy Burns, that this has to be your New Year's resolution to make eye contact with everybody? Um, but it's, it's funny. I think for me, it helped me. Um, and I like technology as much as the next person, in all honesty. But um, it helped me uh, remember that you can't be reflecting love if you're looking at your screen or your phone or as you're talking to somebody, you're thinking, oh, what's that ding that just came through? What am I going to do? So um, it was a way that I, I think, stopped reflecting love in some of my you know, more uh, modest interactions and, and my more quick interactions with people that I had to bring myself back to, okay, if you're really reflecting love, you're giving credence to every single human interaction that you're having, and a way to do that is to engage somebody by looking at them. Um, so that was one of my fa failures that I continue to try to turn around. Another thing that was a great lesson, I have, uh, I'm blessed with four godchildren, and one of them uh, had gone to a Christian school in, in Central Jersey for K through 12, actually, and she was on the girls' basketball team when she was in high school. So, you know, trying to be a good godmother, go to a few games. So I'm at one of the games. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so I go to one of the games, and this was a Christian school. And, I mean, they were very Christian, supposedly. <laughs> so um, we're at the game, and it's a very close game. The other team has the ball. They get fouled. They go to the foul line. The girl misses the ball. So what do I do? I cheer. I cheer because she missed the basket. I'm the only person in the auditorium cheering, okay? Because the culture of this Christian school was actually be nice to everybody. And so even the opposing team you were nice to. And, and I, I, the, the whole rest of the game I was like realizing when there was a bad call, nobody was like, oh, idiot. Um, everybody was just like, they just sat there. And then when the other team did well, you know, you, you just said nothing. And you didn't go like this behind the basket. And I was like, wow, this is like another whole level of reflecting love that I'm not sure that I can incorporate this into my life. Um, that's a big basketball fan. Um, so, so that was another like very kind of unexpected lesson of what does it mean to truly love others and to, to be kind to others is maybe even being nice to people that you have some opposition with. Um, and frankly, in our world today, I think that that actually is a larger lesson and a helpful lesson. And then my third story, which is a little bit of, of a success story, is uh, one time uh, a girl, uh, a sophomore, uh, made an appointment to see me. And often people make appointments to come see me. Any of you are happy to make an appointment to come see me. And I don't know what people are coming in about. It could be anything. Um, and sometimes it's something little. Sometimes it's something big. Sometimes it's something easy. Sometimes it's something complicated. So this young woman comes in. and. Um, she says, uh, you know, I know you don't know me, um, and I can't tell you why, but I really need uh, $50 or some, something of that, you know, general amount, $50 to um, go to Baltimore this weekend. And I can appreciate that it's a weird request um, to ask you for the money to go when I can't tell you why I have to go but I really have to go and I just don't have the money to go.
So, you know, that got my attention, obviously. And, and I wanted to be respectful of not um, intruding in something that clearly was very personal for her. Um, and so after some modest little probes and, and her being very respectful, but kind of saying, you know, I, I, can't, I can't talk about why, but it's just really important to go. I have to go. And so, you know, I said, well, you know, I'm happy to help. We're happy to help. You know, what's logistically the best way to do this? And, and we kind of figured it out. So then, you know, after I had said that, that we would be able to help her, I, I couldn't help myself, but I said to her, you know, we've never met. We don't know each other. Why, why did you come to see me? Like, there's a million people at Villanova. Why did you come to see me? And she said, I was talking with somebody who knows you, and they said you would help. And for me, that was just a huge compliment that um, someone could come with an odd request. And I do know a lot of times when it comes to money, it's both hard to ask, but it can be hard for people to give when they don't know what it's for. Um, and I just have always viewed that as one of my uh, successes in terms of somehow projecting something that someone else saw that I might help somebody in need. And I feel like at the end of the day, that is certainly one of those things I'm called to, is to be there for others and to walk with others and to help others, um, as others have done for me. So in conclusion, I guess um, my, my takeaway is that um, we're each called. Uh, you know, for me in my life, I would say I'm called by God. Uh, maybe for you in your life, it's something else that's calling you. Maybe it's a huge desire for um, some other end, but maybe you have some guiding principle, some guiding force. But I think the question of what am I called to be um, and how am I called to be and who do I want to be on the day that I die? Um, who do I want to become? And frankly, who I was yesterday is different than who I am today is different than who I'll be tomorrow because each day we're becoming. And uh, when I was your age, I used to think, um, I used to think of two ages, age 23 and age 30. And I thought, well, by the time I'm 23, I'll have it all figured out. I'll, I'll know my path, I'll know what I wanna do, I'll be a grown-up. So I turned 23, actually, the first year of law school, which that was bad, because it was a bad year. I was like, well, I certainly don't know what I'm doing. Like, 23, that was a misnomer, you know? Like, that tells me nothing. Um, so then I thought, well, it must be 30, because I feel like people are 30. You know, they're mature, they're grown up. Um, and so then, you know, the years go by, and I remember the day that I turned 30, I just laughed the whole entire day because I thought, I still know nothing, you know? Like, I thought I would have it all figured out when I turned 30, and I still don't know. And um, I would say that continues to be the, the case, that you, you know some answers, and hopefully we become more wise as we age, and that's the beautiful thing about aging. I love aging because I feel like each year I acquire more knowledge and more wisdom and more caring. Um, but what you also realize is there's always a longer way to go, and that's okay. And in fact, I think it's a good thing. And so um, I think our challenge is to listen to that call. For me, it's a call from God, and for me, it's conversations with God that help me figure out my journey. Um, and I just invite you to always ask yourself that question, what am I called to do? but also to remember to bring that faith um, that you might have with you or those guiding principles that you might have as part of you. 
um, because we're not in this by ourselves. And there's many possible paths. There's many possible good paths. There is not one answer. But what you want to do is to make sure that whatever path you're on, you somehow feel like you're being true to your higher power and what your calling in life is, even if it's still under development. So thank you so much, and God bless each of you. Oh, is there a Q&A? Does anybody have any questions for Kathy after her talk? If not, she'll be around afterwards. Uh, feel free. You want to speak up for Kathy here? That's right, oh. right. Well, you know, I feel like you hear this a lot, but people are a lot smarter than when I was here. You know, um, the SATs not only are higher, but you're actually way, way smarter. And when I uh, started working here in 1991, I would talk to people, uh, students, and at the time I had a job similar to Lael and, and Alicia and worked with orientation. It was normal for people not to go to class. Now I feel like when people don't go to class, it's like, <gasps> why would I miss class, you know? It, you're supposed to go to, so people are much more academically inclined. So that is one really big way. The other way is, believe it or not, housing was much worse when I was a student. <laughs> um, you were not guaranteed housing as a freshman. So as a freshman, if you didn't pay your deposit by a certain date, you were living off campus in the community. And then if you were on freshman year, you were guaranteed on sophomore year but virtually no juniors or seniors lived on. The two women's halls were Good Counsel and Sheen. I lived in Sheen for three years, and then I was an RA in O'Dwyer. Some of the smaller buildings were also women's buildings. So the housing was much more limited. As much as you think it might be you know, limited now, it actually, we, it's come a long, long way. Yeah. Any other questions? Sure, so the question is, I one point felt like law school was a waste of time and money, but moved away from that. What, what did that look like? So what I realized was, um, I'll do first, not, not the waste of time and the education, I'll do the money second. So what I realized is um, law school rewires your brain. I don't know if um, any of the older people in the audience happen to be lawyers, but law school rewires how you analyze problems, how you um, think about problems, and I felt like my brain worked way better than it had worked previously. And so I appreciated that. And I also thought that sometimes in a conversation, I would spot an issue that somebody else wouldn't spot because that's what lawyers do is they spot issues. It's sort of your training, like look for the problem, look for the issue, and frankly, also look for the solution. So that was what I found really, really valuable um, and has served me very well, I feel like, over the years. How I reconcile the money is like, first of all, everything in life costs money. So I had this value added. My mom, God bless her, she was a school teacher. She saved 100% of her salary to pay for our college education. So I was able to graduate from undergrad with no debt. So I only had debt from law school, so that, that was made it easier. Um, and, and everything cost money. And I have to say, like while money is nice, it also isn't everything. So as long as you have enough, 
Like when I went from the law firm to Villanova, I was making less than half of what I had been making. I was over 40 before I was making what I'd been making when I was 27 um, because of my different path. But there was no comparison for how fulfilling my work was. So, I mean, because I had enough and I kind of lived simply, I was single for a long time. I didn't have kids, so maybe that made it easier. I didn't have a family. It was just me. I bought a Honda Civic. I didn't buy an expensive car. You know, I didn't live in the most expensive rent. I just kind of, you know, um, got by and thought I have enough and I'm happy. So that's sort of what got me over the, the debt. And, and the, nothing in life is free, so something valuable is valuable. And I, and I came to feel like it was valuable and worth the money. Good question. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So the question is, why did I get involved with BU Pride? And formerly it was called uh, Gay Straight Coalition. So there are many reasons. So first of all, if we go back to my undergraduate days, um, in one of my honors courses also, a lot of my courses had big impact on me. It was a course called, if you can believe it, Normal Psychosexual Development. And we talked all about, you know, frankly, sex, sexual development, sexuality. And one week, our professors brought in a young man who was gay, and he really shared his story. And in the 70s, not as many people were out, not as many people talked about what that experience was like. So I think because I was at a very impressionable age, that really spoke to me, and it made, um, I mean, he was the first person I knew who was gay, um, although maybe I knew other people who just weren't out, but he was, and, and he was just um, so authentic, genuine, regular, normal, that it, it kind of gave me a very, like, well, he's just like everyone else. Like, what, what, what is the big deal? And so I think that was very formative in terms of I, I never had this feeling of, you know, uh, ne negativity or anything. Um, as, as a young person in the 70s, as many people in the 70s did, in all honesty. Um, and then I have two wonderful stepsons, um, and one of them is a gay man, and he um, has been blessed with being in really positive school environments. He went to a friend's school um, in middle school and high school. He went to Brown University. So he has always been in really positive, strong environments. And I would see his experience versus, unfortunately, sometimes Villanova students' experience and Villanova students saying, I feel invisible here. Um, or people saying to me, oh, there's no one gay at Villanova. And I would think, are you crazy? So in 2003, there was a group of students, gay and straight, who really wanted to start a, a group. Um, and I had been involved with some programming with a terrific Augustinian named Father Sean Tracy through the 90s and early 2000s, where we'd sometimes bring in speakers on inclusivity and issues of sexual orientation. Um, so uh, when this group of students uh, came forward and said, we think we really need to have a student um, uh, organization and, and have um, you know, a voice and a presence on campus, uh, I, I was very excited to have the opportunity to be involved with that group. And I feel like uh, I, I am coming from a place of privilege as a straight person, as a Catholic person on this campus. There's a lot of privilege. So I had a great opportunity to be a really strong ally um, for maybe people who were feeling, you know, less than and really needed that ally. So that was kind of how I got involved. And it's been a blessing, you know, ever since. 
Okay. Thank you. Uh, thanks, everybody, once again, for coming out and making our first Agape Latte a huge success. Uh, please give, give another round of applause for all of our Agape Latteers and Red Oil for uh, making this a huge success. And um, everybody, have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.